You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In connection with the sermon this afternoon, we have two readings, one from the Old Testament and one from the New. I'd invite you, first of all, to turn to Daniel chapter 9. It's something of the nature of this afternoon service where we where we hear a proclamation of God's word from the Heidelberg Catechism is that it's it has a teaching function. There's a teaching nature. And at the present time, we are dealing with the Lord's Prayer and teaching about prayer. Well, this prayer of Daniel is one that we ought to spend time with, to learn from. It's a profound prayer. It's a quite an amazing example of prayer for us to learn from, and we'll spend some time doing that this afternoon. But I thought it would be good to point that out as we read it together. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in in, in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. O Lord, we and our kings, our princes and our fathers are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. 
Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. We turn now to John chapter 16. We'll read the verses 17 through 33 in this section as well as in other parts uh, just prior to this section in John 14 and 15. The Lord Jesus repeatedly tells his disciples to pray in his name. And then, of course, following this passage, he himself prays for himself and for his disciples and for the church. Some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and because I am going to the Father? They kept asking, What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth. My Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Although I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language but will tell you plainly about my Father. And that day you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father Himself loves you because you have loved Me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. You believe at last, Jesus answered, but a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered each to his own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Our text this afternoon is the Word of God as it's summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 45 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What belongs to a prayer which pleases God and is heard by Him? First, we must from the heart call upon the one true God only who has revealed Himself in His Word 
for all that he has commanded us to pray. Second, we must thoroughly know our need and misery so that we may humble ourselves before God. Third, we must rest on this firm foundation, that although we do not deserve it, God will certainly hear our prayer for the sake of Christ our Lord, as he has promised us in his word. What has God commanded us to ask of him? All the things we need for body and soul, as included in the prayer which Christ our Lord himself taught us. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we need to be sensitive, of course, about using language which makes it seem like we can somehow manipulate God by our prayers. But at the same time, we need to be realistic about what our prayers are all about and what they do and can achieve and accomplish. What I'm referring to is the theme of our sermon this afternoon where we we come to the how-to section of the instruction about prayer, and we come to how to have God delight in your prayer. I had to think twice before writing down this theme, because it seems a bit presumptuous. How to have God delight in your prayer? Can we do that? But if you look at the question that the Lord, that the catechism asks there in question and answer 117, and that is precisely what is being asked. What belongs to a prayer which pleases God and is heard by Him? Summary, which delights Him and which He delights in. And so that is what we'll look at this afternoon. How to have God Delight in your prayer seems almost too good to be true, except that it is true, and it's still very good. We'll look at the need to, working through these three points that the Catechism gives us here, the need to pray sincerely, the need to pray humbly, and the need to pray confidently in the name of Jesus Christ. So we first deal with the need to pray sincerely, and that is the first thing that comes up here. What belongs to a prayer which pleases God and is heard by Him? First, we must from the heart call upon the one true God. We must, we must call upon God sincerely. But at the same time, realize that this aspect of sincerity is not the only thing that's being emphasized even just in this first section. There are really three things that are being emphasized. Sincerity, reverence, and obedience. The Catechism is, of course, talking about sincerity when it says from the heart. It's talking about reverence when it says call upon the one true God only. Acknowledge who God is and His greatness. And it's talking about obedience when it says for all that God has commanded us to pray. Sincerity, reverence, and obedience. And all of these things must be held in in balance. So which one is the catechism highlighting there? We're going to spend a bit more time talking about sincerity. But perhaps what the catechism is in fact highlighting is in 
this balance itself. That these elements need to be there in our prayers to God. And a prayer that lacks any one of these three is a prayer that in itself is lacking. Is lacking. Now realize again that the Lord is gracious and merciful, that the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf in our prayers, that Jesus Christ intercedes on our behalf for our prayers. Every prayer we offer is a prayer offered in weakness. God listens to weak prayers. But at the same time, God's Word shows us about a balance that is to be there in prayer. When you get the sense something is wrong when when one of these is missing, when, say, a camp counselor, for example, trying to model authenticity in prayer for his uh, the kids that are with him, begins in prayer, Hey God, what's up? That's a prayer perhaps being offered sincerely, but it's a prayer that lacks reverence. Or you can consider the minister or the teacher who has learned all the right words and expressions and phrases to put together in a beautiful prayer, but it seems that they've long since forgotten how to mean what they actually say. It reminds me of a, a, a part in, in the book, Anne of Green Gables, Anne's rebuked for not listening to the prayer of the schoolmaster, the, the principal at school, Mr. Bell. But she says, well, he wasn't talking to me. He was talking to God, and he didn't seem to be very interested in that either. I think he thought God was too far off for it to make it worth his while. There's the sincerity lacking there. Or you can think of, say, the fixed-income couple who desperately wants to see some improvement in their stock portfolio so that they can use the money to buy a new big-screen TV. So they pray unceasingly. They may pray sincerely, they may pray reverently, there's some aspect of obedience that's missing there. They're not praying for what God commands us to pray. And then, of course, there's the quick dad, let's pray because the hockey game is going to be on in five minutes. That prayer arguably lacks any of those, sincerity, reverence, or obedience. Now, what the catechism is highlighting here is this balance between those three. And we see that balance in some examples of prayer throughout Scripture. Of course, the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer can be prayed, of course, in an insincere way. But when we pray these words sincerely, then they contain the reverence, hallowed be your name, and the obedience. Give me this day, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts. The obedience of what God has commanded us to pray. And you also see it in, in that prayer from Daniel, in Daniel 9. It is overwhelmingly a sincere prayer. He comes before the Lord in prayer and petition and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And you can hear the sincerity at the close of the prayer. Oh Lord, listen. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, hear and act. He is sincere in his requests. And it's very reverent. Verse 4. O Lord, the great and awesome God. Verse 7, O Lord, You are righteous. Verse 9, The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against Him. And it is 
obedient to God throughout. As Daniel comes before the Most Holy God, he acknowledges the guilt and the transgressions of the people. He acknowledges them, but he also acknowledges the great mercy of God. He prays according to how God has revealed Himself as the God who punishes wickedness, but who also forgives His people when they come to Him in repentance. For another prayer, we could think about Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. So sincere that he was sweating out drops of blood as he offered up those words. And reverent and obedient when he said to the Father, Yet not my will be done, but your will be done. So obedient that he would go to the cross in order to bear God's wrath against our sin as we heard about this morning, in fact. And so these prayers, and many others as well, show the sort of balance that the catechism is urging us to have in our prayer. But as I said, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about sincerity. We talk about sincerity because that itself comes up in the rest of the answer as well. The catechism is talking about sincerity in the second point when it says we must thoroughly know our need and misery. That will draw us to be sincere. And it is also talking about sincerity when it says, although we do not deserve it, God will certainly hear us for the sake of Christ our Lord. Another reason to emphasize the sincerity and and to notice that perhaps that's what's being emphasized by the catechism here is to consider the context in which the catechism was written It was written in largely a Roman Catholic church, the Roman Catholic church at the end of the Middle Ages, where there was a large culture of prayer. There was a lot of prayer going on. And you could even say there was a certain type of prayer that was from the heart. But in their context, from the heart meant you memorized a prayer, the Lord's Prayer, our Father, or you memorized the the prayer that began with Hail Mary, You would memorize those words and you would repeat them over and over and over again. You would count off the beads on on the rosary as you would as you would say those prayers. So it was from the heart, if you mean in terms of committing that to your heart, committing it to memory. But you realize in that context it could very be very easily be done without thinking, just as a sort of a mantra, just something to kind of put off into the corner of your mind and and just work down the number of beads on your rosary that the priest had told you to do. That was the context of prayer at the time that the catechism was written. And in contrast to this practice, the the reformers emphasized, with the balance talked about here, free, open, and, and sincere manner of coming before God. And that that any believer could come before God in prayer. The the Reformers emphasized the priesthood of all believers, that you didn't need the priest to to tell you what to pray or when, or even to pray for you, but that you yourself, in the name of Jesus Christ, could come before God in prayer. That was revolutionary in those times, that, that a believer could, on their own, sincerely, with their own words, come before their Heavenly Father in prayer and present their requests and their thanks and their praise to Him. It was radical. 
And so we must pray from the heart. We must pray sincerely. And this from the heart is important to remember as part of the balance because it reminds all of us who are focused on on theological correctness and, and on redemptive context that that's not enough. It's not enough to have the right words to pray. It's not enough even to know exactly what you have to pray for. No, we must pray sincerely each and every time. Our hearts and our minds must be engaged fully in this activity of prayer. We can add that in the context of a worship service, when when the minister is in fact praying for all of us, that doesn't exclude us all from being sincerely engaged in the the process of praying. Of praying the, the, the requests, the petitions, the thanks and praise right alongside the person leading prayer. From the heart also reminds us, all of us for whom prayer has become overly formalized, that merely rattling off a bunch of words at the, say, at the right time is not enough. We must mean it. Of course, it's good to regularly come before God in prayer. It's good to have regular times of prayer. But our heart must always be engaged in the prayers that we offer to God. From the heart also teaches us that our hearts need to be touched by life, by the griefs that life brings, by the joys that life brings. We need to allow our hearts to be filled with these these griefs and these joys to share in the ones of those around us so that we can bring these concerns to God. Prayer from the heart, a heart full of love and compassion, a heart full of joy and thanks, offering those prayers to God. There was a time when this aspect of sincerity was the hallmark of Reformed prayer. And we need to ask ourselves, is this still the hallmark of Reformed prayer, is from the heart sincerity present in our prayers? And to answer that, we need to consider going on the next two points. Because that's how you grow in sincerity. By understanding your dependence on God's grace and understanding the gift of God in His Son, Jesus Christ, who in whose name we can offer our prayers. And so that that brings us to our next point, the point about praying humbly. As we consider praying humbly, we feel a tension immediately, talking about humility and, and maintaining humility in our lives. How do we do that? It's the same tension that exists in the humble man's boast that I'm the most humble person I know. Of course, as soon as you say that, you show how unhumble you are. To, to focus on your own humility is not an easy thing. Have you ever thought about the Pharisee and the tax collector? The Pharisee thanked others that he, or thanked God that he was not like the others, especially the tax collector, while the tax collector simply prayed for mercy. Oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the Lord Jesus holds up their two extremes of prayer one of hypocrisy and one of humility. And 
it's likely that our prayers don't fit under either one of those at any one time, but perhaps somewhere in between. But if our prayers are somewhere in between, to what extreme do we go when we pray? And how do I become more like the tax collector when I pray in terms of his his broken and, and authentic approach, what the Lord Jesus is highlighting with him? How do I avoid that hypocrisy and pride of, of the Pharisee? Well, the answer is not to focus on, on your humility or how great that is, but to know your need and misery. As the Catechism shows us, we must thoroughly know our need and misery so that, with the purpose that, then we might humble ourselves before God. Well, what's this talking about, this need and misery? Well, Need is talking about our needs for body and soul. That comes up in 118 as well. What does the Lord command us to ask Him? All the things we need for body and soul. And to to be able to pray our needs, in order to grow in our needs, we have to learn to understand what our needs actually are. And the most obvious needs to us in our mind at any given time are not always truly needs. I'm reminded of of a situation that happened in my life that has always been striking to me of a friend at a at a wedding who said on this the morning of this beautiful day. It was supposed to be rainy that day, but it turned out to be just a beautiful sunny day, and she came to me and said we were praying all night that that it would be sunny today. We were constantly asking God for the right weather for this wedding, and, and now we have it, and God heard our prayers. Well, nice weather at a wedding is, is a really nice thing. It's a beautiful thing. But certainly there were far more important aspects to, to a wedding than the weather going on outside. Would it not have been better to ask God to bless those more important things, the couple, their love, their commitment, the message proclaimed at the wedding, many other things. Of course, we all think about the weather on a wedding day, but perhaps we need to go deeper and to understand what our needs truly are, what what truly is important, and to ask God for those. Now, we learn to know our needs by by contemplating Scripture, by growing in the wisdom of the Lord. Reading the book of Proverbs, for example, will teach us to know our needs. It teaches us to view things in life correctly. Material, relationships. Contemplating on God's Word will will teach us to learn what our true needs are. And of course, contemplating on Scripture makes us realize that our deepest Our truest need is the need for the forgiveness of our sins, for salvation in Jesus Christ. And then we come to the second part, the knowing our misery. What does misery refer to, and why does it all of a sudden pop up here, knowing our need and misery? Well, you'll remember at the beginning of the catechism, it frequently is talking about our misery, our sin and our misery. Our sin, our rebellion against God, our misery, the the results of our sin, the consequences of sin. That's what, that's what misery is referring to. It refers to the, the results of our sins and also simply the results of sinfulness in the world. It doesn't necessarily have to relate directly to us. 
Sometimes there is a direct connection. Our sins do cause misery in our lives. But at other times, our, it's the sins of others that cause us misery. Or sometimes there's seemingly no one to blame apart from the brokenness that's present in this world. Brokenness that came as a result of the first sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Misery is the consequences of sin and and sinfulness and brokenness in the world. And so need and misery, knowing our need and misery is an acknowledgement of our weakness, our, our sinfulness, and the presence of brokenness in our experience. This causes us to humble ourselves before God. Daniel 9. Again, we come back to it. In Daniel 9, Daniel acknowledges the sin of the people. He acknowledges that Israel was in exile because of their sins. And so he calls out to God and he acknowledges their sin and their guilt. I'll read a couple of verses. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant of love with all who love Him and obey His commands, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We've turned away from your commands and laws. Daniel acknowledges that this exile has come as a result of their sin. It's the consequences of their sin. And even in good times, God's people called to God and acknowledged their sins. To Solomon, God said, Solomon, of course, reigned in a good time in Israel's history. And God said, if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. Or you can think of the prayer of Jehoshaphat in 2, Corinthians, or 2 Chronicles 20. Israel was being threatened by the armies of Ammon and, and Moab, and he prayed these words, O God, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are fixed on you. We do not know what to do. Acknowledge their need, their misery. But our eyes are fixed on you. Beautiful confession of dependence. And so prayer that God delights in is prayer that acknowledges our weakness, our sinfulness, and the presence of, of brokenness in our world. Now, God doesn't delight in our sin and misery. That's not what I'm saying. God delights in our satisfaction and joy. But we only find those when we realize our need and our brokenness and we humbly depend on Him. When we humbly depend on God, then we experience joy and satisfaction. And God draws us through that by delighting in our prayers as we acknowledge our need and misery to Him. And it may seem a little strange, but actually praying humbly is the fruitful soil for praying confidently. And that's our last point. Humility is the fruitful soil for praying confidently. That is to say, our confidence before God as we pray to Him is based on our humility. When we truly understand our need and misery and confess that our dependence is not in ourselves then we will simultaneously confess that our confidence is in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone, our only Savior, who has met our deepest need and has saved us from our misery. 
Now, to give an example, it happens in life that we become disoriented. That the circumstances of our lives, a, a trauma that we face or terrible events is like a big headshot that leaves us spiritually whirling, confused, and, and disoriented. I've known some people who struggle with addictions. And I can only imagine how hard it has been in their lives for them to, to deal with their addiction. Many of them who, who are able to stay dry and sober, who are able to avoid their addiction, that, that it involved a massive amount of, of, of work, of prayer, of dependence on God, of acknowledging their, their need and misery. It was a huge spiritual exercise. It was bathed in, in repentance and prayer and accountability and Bible study. They really feel as if God brought them from, from this place that was terrible to a place where, where they're able to function and they're able to, to, to serve God and, and to avoid the, the pain and, and life-breaking heartache that they had before in their addiction. But if you have someone who has gone through that experience, what happens to them when they slip back, when they fall off the bandwagon, when they have a drink, or they take the drugs that they had been avoiding so long? Where do they turn? God has already helped them out of this mess once. It took a a huge amount of work And now they've fallen back. Where do they turn now? Is God going to hear them? Is He going to help them out again? How are they going to stand before God with any confidence at all? Now, I use that example because that's the same problem that we all face. Of course, that situation is, is very profound. Very difficult. But it's the same problem that we all face when we face our our need and our misery. Every one of us who fights against sin, but then falls back into sin, we're forced to acknowledge how can we stand confidently before God? How will He hear us? We can't stand on our own merit. We've just failed. But we don't stand confidently before God on our own merit. We can only come before God in Jesus' name. But when we come before God in Jesus' name, then we can pray confidently. That addict who has fallen back into the pit can pray confidently to God in Jesus' name. Daniel 9. Not on the ground of our righteousness, O Lord, but on the ground of your great mercy. Jesus repeatedly told his disciples in John 14 that they could ask for anything in his name. Remembering, of course, the balance of the first point, sincerity, reverence, obedience, which means learning to ask God what we should pray for. But keeping that in mind, you can pray in Jesus' name and be totally confident of your prayer. That God hears you. God will help you. 
Now again, to go back to what we need to pray for, if you're thinking about, you're struggling about, how do I pray for the right things? Sometimes a helpful exercise is to pray in Jesus' name right beside the request that you are giving to the Lord. And then it, it kind of works itself out. If you pray, in Jesus' name, please give me a new bike, a new car. In Jesus' name, lower my taxes. In Jesus' name, forgive my sins. You realize when you pray in Jesus' name, right beside your request, that that last one doesn't suffer the awkwardness of the other two. In Jesus' name, teaches us how to pray. So we need to let Jesus' name and His glory dictate what we pray for. And that's why God will hear the prayer of that person struggling in their sin who asks in Jesus' name because it is precisely there that they can stand confidently before God. When you pray in Jesus' name, you're standing on Christ's work on your behalf. On what He has done, suffering during His life, going to the cross, dying, rising again, victorious over sin and death. When you're praying in Jesus' name, you're standing on, on Christ's person that He is, is like you, a man. But He's more powerful than you. He's God. When you're praying in Jesus' name, you're praying, you're standing with Christ at the right hand of God where He is interceding for you before His Father. Praying in Jesus' name is not just a signal that the prayer is about to end. Praying in Jesus' name is a powerful and effective way of ensuring that God the Father delights in your prayer. God is pleased and He hears us when we come to Him in the name of His beloved Son. When we stand on His righteousness. When we know our dependence. When we know our need and our misery. When we pray sincerely, reverently, and obediently, and we call on His name. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.